0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephen Sadman, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm episodes drop every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Each week, I will be talking to one of our four co-hosts, Aaron Gibbs von Anessa Kimball, Lena Tamseto, and Arthur Mulchinsky. Thanks for listening. This week on Battle Rhythm, uh, I'm talking to Anessa Kimball, professor at Laval University. Uh, How are you doing, Anessa?
1: I'm great. How are you, Steve?
0: I'm pretty good. I had a really busy week last week. I got to go to the gala the vimy gala every year the conference on defense associations institute has a big gala is now so big it it moved from the war museum to the canadian museum of history and heritage and they had 600 people in the room all dressed in tuxes and gowns i was looking spiffy former co-host of the battle of the podcast Emmy Von lackey was there and she was looking spiffy in her gown lots of folks that we know were there and it was a really good night until the speech
1: Yes, I understand that the speech was notable, but not for the reasons that we usually think about yes. those speeches.
0: <laughs> That's right. It was uh, Lieutenant General retired, Michel Mazenov. He was awarded the Vimy Award, which some some body within or above the CBI uh, decides every year, and he used his speech to rant and uh, about a variety of topics, including. Uh, criticizing the new uniform regulations, including calling basically entire next generation entitled and spoiled uh, that there's no service culture anymore, that the civilians were weak and didn't exercise leadership. And of course, if they exercised leadership, then you probably have a problem with that too. You know, Some of the other opinions that were really problematic was he criticized the apologies for the past while he was standing in front of a bunch of totem poles and after the just dance group had, had just performed. So it the challenge is that, you know, the organization itself probably can't control what he had to say. They probably didn't have a chance to filter a speech or edit a speech. But they did choose him, and he was known for having views that might not be all that uh, compatible with the focus today on changing the calf culture. He definitely illustrated what was wrong about the calf's culture up till now. And it was, it was a speech that got a standing ovation where people slapped him on the back afterwards. And it was profoundly frustrating from my part in the audience. Somebody at my table walked out in the middle of the talk because they were so frustrated at this. And I really wanted to see the government distance itself from the speech because this is exactly everything that the Arbour report and Anand and, and, and Mr. Anand and, and uh, Chief of Staff Air have been talking about about how to, how we can't have these these legacies continue to shape the present military, or else it's going to discourage recruitment retention. So I wrote a blog post about it that was pretty critical. And then I got an overwhelming response from people within the military and near the military supporting my calling this out. And then today, Anand did tweet about it, making clear that this was not really what we're looking for in today's officers. But it shows that the old guard still exists, and it's not just folks outside the military. I haven't had anybody with stars on their shoulders or leaves on their shoulders, I should say reach out to me to say how upset they were about this. I've got a lot of people who are junior to that, but none of the senior officers seem to be all that bothered by it, or at least not publicly so. So I found the whole thing pretty disturbing.
1: And I think that that's a challenge because, you know, as as a scholar that studies civil military relations, these are exactly you know, and has been you know, thinking about these issues for a while. These are some of the things that very much demonstrating what we talk about when we talk about recalcitrant culture of change, and we talk about kind of gatekeeping within the community, and still allowing people that don't represent all voices to kind of get to the podium. And I think that on the one hand, it It's very unfortunate that, you know, there was a large platform and this happened in a large platform and an event that is, uh, you know, extremely meaningful and poignant for the Canadian forces and for those who had served. But I think on the other hand, it's also, you know, one of those if- It's so insidious and so everywhere that it even happens at this type of event in some senses. So it's almost like a demonstration of how far off from reality the reality is that we face versus, you know, what we want to see on paper and what we think the reality should be.
0: Yeah, well, and one of the questions I have is whenever there's something like this happens in the States, there's always a discussion by those folks who study civil relations is whether retired officers speaking out says something about what the active officers are thinking because the active officers can't speak out like this the same way. And so is Mason a representative of the current crop of two and three-star officers? Um, again, I'm not sure because no, none of them have actually spoken out against it. So I'm not going to say silence is consent in this, but the silence is disturbing. But it does yes. speak to the ongoing challenge of the control control the military, which is you have a generation or generations of officers benefited from the old system, and they don't want to see change because it benefits them, but has benefited in the past and continues to benefit them. And if you change the way things are being done, it's going to hurt them, it's going to hurt their followers who believe in the same ways of doing things. So... Uh, Maisonneuve has also written pieces trying to stem off any major reforms of the Royal Military College. He made his name in the last part of his career by being involved with the branch of the military college that's um, near Montreal at uh, St. Jean. And so he's been playing a bat- role already, trying to push back against Arbor, against Deschamps, against Anand, against Air, essentially. And so it would be nice if we had more voices out there, particularly of senior military officers, senior D&D people, you know, saying that this is not what everybody else believes, that this is, this is a dinosaur who's been left behind, as opposed to this is somebody who's reflective of contemporary Canadian military folks.
1: Well, I mean, and this kind of comes back to a very classic collective action issue, you know, issue, right? You know, if the costs for the individual are very high to kind of uh, defect or to, you know, speak out against maison then of course it's going to deter individuals from doing so. You have to either have somebody who can feel relatively insulated from the costs or doesn't care about the costs, which is, you know, as you were saying, people that have retired, right? There's the sense that, you know, there's less costs on them uh, on them speaking out. And so I think that it's one of those in and, and it's it's made even more difficult by the fact that part of the culture is this culture of not speaking out, right? This culture of not preventing to toe the party line is one of the things that, right? And so, you know, I very much hope, I mean we both read the arbor report and i think we we chatted about it and you know there's a lot of good recommendations in there i think that it's going to take time to do some of these things and i can only hope that with more and more people kind of publicly acknowledging that those types of discourses are not productive not efficient and not appropriate we can start to move things just a little bit forward. And, you know, that's that's how it starts. And, you know, maybe it starts with retirements of people like that and, and unwelcome speeches to change things. You know, I guess we have to be patient.
0: Yeah, we have to be patient. I'm, I tend to be an impatient person, but this was, you know, letting this stuff stew, you know, one of the things that became clear from the the emails I was getting and the direct messages, the LinkedIn messages and all the rest was that there's a real disconnect between the colonels, lieutenant lieutenant colonels, the commanders, lieutenant commanders, and the folks at the top, because there's the folks in between the one and two star officers who seem not to be getting it, or at least not seeming all that responsive, Mm -hmm. that the younger folks get why culture change is needed. They're interested in implementing it. They're pushing ahead with it, but they don't necessarily think that the folks above them do get it. So, what needs to be done is for the folks up the top of the chain, up in, in the middle of the chain, to make clear that they get it. That requires behavior. Uh, yep. One of the things that I, I was pushing at because of uh, some of the messages I got was that we just need to know more about how the promotions are working. There's AMEC data, that is, there's people telling stories about how toxic leaders are getting promoted despite the new promotion procedures. And so it'd be good to have clear information about what percentage of officers are being denied promotions or being denied, denied new commands because the 360 degree reviews have revealed things, right? The whole idea of having 360 degree reviews where the commentators, evaluators are anonymous and random are so that people can speak freely about the positive and negatives of the potential candidates for promotion. In the old days, this was advisory and the person got to pick their, their evaluators, which meant you had some dude getting his favorite boss to say nice things about him and his most submissive underlings to say nice things about him. Now it's supposed to be anonymous and random, so that way you can get a better sense of people's true capabilities, true leadership. And so the question now is, are those evaluations really mattering? And there's a, there's a, a perception among some of the folks in the military That these things don't really that matter that much. That it's still the old way of doing things. That maybe the regiments are still picking who gets promoted, whatever it is. And so we should see statistics. We should see numbers. You like statistics. You like numbers. So maybe we should see numbers of what percentage of these folks aren't promoted. What percentage of them refuse to be put up for a promotion or command because they're afraid of what a 360 review would would entail, what it would reveal. Mm -hmm. And if we had a clear idea of what's happening and how that compares to what happened in the past, then D&D, the CDS, other folks could be able to say, hey, look, we've changed the incentive structure, we've changed how people are being promoted, and now people should understand that there are consequences for bad behavior, for being a toxic leader. And so it's not just a matter of changing institutions, you have to show that institutions are actually binding behavior, actually shaping outcomes. Mm -hmm. And only then will the institutions actually matter. institutions are only pieces of paper until people actually think they, they constrain people, and then people will act as if they constrain people. It'll become self-reinforcing. But you need to be able to be transparent about it. The thing that I always talk about when it comes to universities is that if they really want to take sexual harassment seriously, they need to fire a tenured professor and make it public. They can't just you know, ease some old professor into retirement. They can't just fire uh, untenured faculty. They have to fire some, you know, take a hard case, fire them, and that will show the university cares about sexual harassment. And the military has to do something similar, which is they have to be public about the process. So that way people can understand that there's something that has really changed. It's not just a matter of changes in procedures in books, but actually changes in policy and in outcomes.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, again, the whole the, the bit on patience, but also, you know, the bit on we want to see that there's evidence that change is happening that don't just say that you're that there are changes, but you know, how do you evaluate your performance and have metrics towards knowing that the change is going in the right direction or not? And so I think it is also a bit there needs to be a you know, a type of development of how do we how do we know that we're going ahead. It's good to have policies, but also we need to figure out if, we're, if, we're, if these policies are the right ones or are ones that are actually facilitating the change, or are they, like you said, maybe creating perverse incentives so that might actually circumvent the change that we're trying to see.
0: Well, the good news for Michelle Masonov is that the Russians just hit Poland by accident, apparently, with a couple of missiles and killed a couple of Poles. And so that's going to take the Vimigala and put it on the back pages. And, Although
1: it's not apparently clear yet whether it was Russian or if they were the Ukrainian Army uh, missile defense, apparently that's what I've read.
0: Well, this is uh, Tuesday, three almost three o'clock uh, the Eastern Time Zone on November fifteenth, and yeah. I have seen tweets about there the there were cruise missiles that did go from Ukraine Russian territory to Pol- to over Ukrainian territory and land in in Polish territory. Now it could be that they were aiming for the Ukrainian territory and got hit by anti-aircraft missiles that missed or that changed their direction. So I'm not going to say that there was deliberate targeting, but I exactly. think we have a fair enough amount of stuff to speculate now about the fact that there was indeed Russian missiles. It wasn't just anti-aircraft weapons that returned to land, but that there was a path of missiles that were charted going across the space, the air, and landing in the wrong place.
1: And oh, so- exactly.
0: So people are now jumping to, hey, Article 5, World War Three, woo! And I'm assuming that you're on the same page with me, that Article 5 is not going to get invoked because this would require a consensus amongst NATO countries to agree that an attack has happened and it requires a collective response. And that would not be in NATO's interest because Article 5 has thus far done a pretty good job of protecting NATO countries from Russia's war. And also that Putin doesn't want Article 5 to be invoked because thus far it has protected Russia from having to deal with direct NATO intervention into his war.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is – again, the probability Article 5 is actually – you know, successfully invoked and, you know, everybody consents uh, to respond. I think that that's pretty low. And if there would be any sort of response, it would only make the situation more difficult than it is currently. And it it certainly wouldn't help at all Ukraine situation. It would just make things a little bit more, it would definitely make things more complicated. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I would love right now to be a, a fly on the wall there in in Poland listening to what's going on in the high level meetings because uh, as we know Poland is one of the NATO allies that has probably gone the most all in in terms of supporting Ukraine in this conflict you know Poland is the country that is serving as the conduit for a vast majority of the military aid so it's going to be Hard to convince Poland that it was an accident under such circumstances, and so I imagine that there's going to be a lots of investigating and trying to maybe cool things off a little bit there, uh, a snap decision is made, or before, you know, uh, things get out of hand.
0: Yeah, I, I, I just want to reassure people that this is not going to lead to World War Three anytime soon, that NATO countries have a lot of reasons to be restrained about this that Russia has a lot of reason not to encourage us to go up. I'm cur- While we're talking, there are people widely speculating on Twitter. It's not going to lead to anything huge. It's it's problematic. It's going to cause us to have to figure out how do we escalate enough to make this costly for the Russians to show that, that we're serious, so that way they return back to their old rules of engagement, which meant they weren't targeting cities near the Polish border, but that, don't lead, that aren't going to lead to a spiral. So... There's not going to be Article 5. People are already talking about Article 4. Article 4 exists for NATO to consult over how best to defend allies. And it's uh, already display of commitment and, and seriousness. So I, I don't think we're going to go far beyond that. But it does require paying attention to. I think what this does signal in some way is more desperation by the Russians. Because in the aftermath of losing Kherson, which was the only major Ukrainian city that they had left, from their attacks in February, as opposed to the major cities that they have from their annexation in 2014. That's another kill of fish. But since they lost Kyrgyz, that was very embarrassing. So it may be that Putin and the Russian leadership changed the rules of engagement for their missile forces to hit targets all over Ukraine. That, well, That was the story of today before we heard about the Polish casualties, which is that the Russians were systematically going after energy infrastructure in Ukraine. They can't seem to hit military targets, but they're very good at hitting civilian targets. And so there are lots, lots of missiles launched to hit civilian targets all throughout Ukraine, including cities closer to the Polish border than they had done in the past. And when you do that, that raises the possibility of accidents. And so I think that's what's going on here. I don't think it was a deliberate effort, but probably they were just targeting They were, they were less restrained that they had a broader rules of engagement which raised the risks. And now one of the risks is you might miss and hit Poland. And now the Russians have to deal with whatever the response is from Poland, the United States, and our allies.
1: Well, I mean, notably, it is very, very close to the the, the geotag pin, is very close to a a land border uh, between the two and uh, in one of the only routes there. So, again, this speaks to maybe miss of a hit than actually trying to target Poland. And again because it is actually one of the land routes it's probably one of, it is definitely one of the routes that's probably being used in terms of delivering equipment to the area. So again, we want you know what we would hope to avoid is an accidental risk of ex- escalation uh, in the conflict that would call in other actors. Yeah, I I don't see NATO seeing this as an attack on the whole alliance. There's going to be a level of strategic communications, of course, that they're going to release, you know, trying to call out Russia and, you know, trying to dissuade them from targeting such places that are close to, you know, possible close to NATO members. But again, as we've seen in the last few weeks, the tide has shifted a little bit. And we're seeing that, you know, Russia has been losing territory. It is trying to dig into some positions. I think a lot of forecasters are looking at these next few weeks as we go into January as, you know, whether or not you know, things will stabilize and hold through the winter in some senses and get entrenched or you know will this kind of be a a push out a a strong push out it's left to be seen i don't know what do you think is the best strategy now to uh try and encourage to try and push Russia out as fast as possible before the winter settles in or try and find a demarcation that would be reasonably defendable now through the winter
0: i think that's a really good question i think the ukrainians have momentum on their side and so the Russians are desperate for anything that can slow down and for them to be able to put together their newly mobilized forces. They've been digging lines, trenches, but the Ukrainians may go around them. They've already done a bit of amphibious operations to go around those those barriers. So I expect the Ukrainians to continue to be successful. I mean, why, why bet against them now? They've, they've been very smart in everything they've done. The Russians have been mostly incompetent in what they've done. The way they pulled out of Kherson was problematic. Some people have speculated that they were staying there past election day in the United States because they didn't want to give Joe Biden a win that might cause the Republicans to lose. So they, they, were, they, were, they were focused more on the electoral calendar in, in the United States than they were on the battlefield which means that they left behind more equipment and more troops than they might have otherwise. So I, I think the best bet is to bet on continued Russian incompetence because uh, this leadership hasn't changed and bet on continued uh, Ukrainian competence, success. Mo- they're very, very mobilized. They're very, very supportive of the war. So for instance, these missile strikes today have taken out the power of a number of Ukrainian cities, but the Ukrainians have proven they're very good about getting infrastructure back online. And I don't think the Ukrainians are go, well, you know, we have lost power in our cities for a few days, so we're going we're gonna to negotiate. I just don't see that happening. No. Well, it's been a busy world for international relations. So before we close off, I thought I we'd talk a little bit about the recent meeting of, uh, in Egypt of the COP27. You are leading many CDS and in efforts, including the new climate security uh, research team. As you watched all the private planes fly to Egypt for this meeting. Did we see anything come out of it that was any of any consequence that, that might mean that we are more successful in fighting climate change, or was it just performance?
1: I think These things there's a it's a bit of performance mixed with a bit of some light types of trying to get engagements. I mean, one challenge is that some of the main players didn't go to conference of the parties this year. Notably, the UK. So it's difficult to come to international agreements on you know on environmental change and things like that if you don't you know have all of the largest players in the room. The conference of the parties has become a place where concerned stakeholders, stakeholders that, you know, are rich, stakeholders that want to invest in what would be new and emerging markets when it comes to renewable, durable development, all of that. I think it's a great place for all of these stakeholders to kind of meet and exchange ideas. Whether or not the outcomes to, you know, what these countries talk about and what they might sign on paper are actually meaningful, I think that's an entire different thing. Uh, One of the reasons why I ended up focusing or getting more interested in the Conference of the Parties um, is because, of course, Quebec was there promoting its new provincial-level legislation, which is uh, essentially aiming to end and close the hydrocarbon exploration industry in all of Quebec. And so this Law 21, which was passed over the summer, basically prohibits the exploration, exploitation, and research and development of anything related to the hydrocarbon. hydrocarbon industry in the province of Quebec. And so I think this is interesting because it is a very strong piece of legislation. They did a lot of kind of fundamental groundwork with some of the stakeholders, particularly industry stakeholders that have been very reticent to participate. And one of the large things that they did was think about very critically how they would remunerate or compensate the various business committed in that sector. One of the ways that they managed to bring the parties together essentially was by What would be changing beliefs about the future of the sector in Quebec by basically saying, look, this sector is dead, it's closed, it's not going to happen. So even if you think there's billions of dollars of investment, you're not going to, that's like fictive money you don't have, it's monopoly money right? And so you can't ask us to pay you a percentage of millions of dollars that you don't actually have because you have to go around the board a lot of times to get that money, right? And so I think that was very important, kind of shifting the agenda to a place where those stakeholders that want to be very powerful in terms of society, in terms of uh, business, basically now start to understand that, you know, just because you're benefiting from this exploitation game today, it doesn't mean that it's going to insert. Certainly, the norm is going to be moving towards carbon neutrality. We're definitely not moving towards more carbon dependence. And so I think that that was very interesting. But of course, Quebec benefits by being able to do this because they have strong alternatives in hydroelectricity. It's not possible in other parts of Canada, but I think that it it demonstrates a good initiative that could be uh, copyable in other places.
0: Well, that that sounds promising. It's been a very frustrating time in Canada for progress in this area because certain provinces have been most resistant to this and it's challenging at, at this time to make progress. The politics here are so twisted because of how the overlay of resources with the provincial boundaries and provincial politics makes it very hard to get Canada on one page on these things. So if we have Quebec you know, make some progress on it and serve as a role model in that way, that that would be great.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I think I think it's kind of interesting because it also speaks a little bit to um, the larger work on climate security in NATO, and of course, it's interesting because the Climate Security Center of Excellence Canada is hosting is going to be in Montreal, mm-hmm. and so kind of having all of these line up together, um, I think is something that could be very interesting and productive in terms of you know how we can think about the future of defense and security.
0: Speaking of of being productive and interesting in the future of Canadian defense and security, let me use this as a segue to plug the year ahead. Our annual conference takes place at the War Museum on December 9th. You can go to the CDSN webpage to get information about it. We've got a panel on learning from Ukraine's successes and Russia's failures. We have a panel on Canadian civil relations. It's going to mostly look at Uh, surveys, different surveys of the Canadian public and attitudes about the military, but that's relevant for the conversation we've already had today. And the third panel will just be on uh, xenophobia and national security, which has been organized by one of our partners, Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security Canada. Plus, we're going to start it off, we're kicking it off with our own panel of the CDSN facing its future and facing Canada's future. We have an initiative that we're going to be launching then that I'm not going to say much about now, but it It does involve, in part, our podcasts, or entirely our podcasts. And so, Anessa, we'll have you participate from Quebec. Sorry that you can't join the festivities, but the year ahead has always been a great event for talking to the policy community about the things in the near horizon. And the near horizon right now are pretty disturbing, uh, more disturbing today now that we've had missiles hit Poland, but we're hoping to get a good crowd for that event. And lastly, I should uh, promote our interview that I had with Mike Wright, who's a major general in charge of CIFINTCOM. CIFINTCOM is the Canadian Forces Intelligence Command. And so we talked about what the role of Intelligence Command is in the policy-making process. And the two hats he wears, because he not only commands CIFINTCOM, he also administrates or runs the larger Canadian defense intelligence enterprise. And so the striking thing about Mike Wright and his current reign in this role is he's very much willing to reach out and talk about what they're doing. And we usually don't think that the intelligence folks who are seen as secret squirrels being all that talkative. So I hope people stick around for that interview, which will come on after. I say thank you to Anessa for joining me today and sharing her expertise on NATO and on all things.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation. And as always, it's wonderful to talk defense and security. Until the next time, Steve.
0: Uh, it's been a pl- my pleasure, Anessa. Have a good winter break and. We're looking forward to your climate security workshop that's taking place in January in, of all places,
1: Montreal. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Take care. Take care.
0: Today on Battle of them, we have Major General Mike Wright. He is the commander of CIFINTCOM, which he's going to explain what that is. And we're looking forward to having a conversation about the intelligence side of things within the CAF and around the CAF. Uh, welcome back of them, Mike. Hey, thanks very
2: much for having me, Steve. Our pleasure. So first of all, for the folks who listen, what is CIFINCOM? Right, so CIFINCOM is a short form for Canadian Forces Intelligence Command. And I have a dual hat as both the commander of Canadian Forces Intelligence Command as the and as a chief of defense intelligence. So first of all, I'll start with what CIFINCOM is. It's an organization of about 1,000 people almost 50-50 military and civilian. Headquarters is located in Ottawa. We have a couple of our units, the Joint Imagery Center and the Mapping and Charting Establishment located in Ottawa, but we also have units such as our School of Military Intelligence, JTFX, our human unit uh, located in Kingston, and then a Joint Meteorology Center in Gagetown and uh, School of Meteorology in Winnipeg. And then our National Counterintelligence unit with its headquarters in Ottawa. Has detachments all across the country. So that those 1,000 uh, people make up Canadian Forces Intelligence Command. As the Chief of Defense Intelligence, I have responsibilities across what we call the Defense Intelligence Enterprise. And so whereas we have 1,000 people that are serving within CF Income, there are about 4,000 people across the Canadian Armed Forces and Department of National Defense that are in one way, shape or form involved in intelligence, and that's what comprises what we call the defense intelligence enterprise. Okay,
0: and let's think of the first part for a second. You mentioned counterintelligence people across the country. Uh, Now, those folks are looking for spies within the CAF or beyond the CAF?
2: So we're looking at counterintelligence threat armed forces. So that could come from hostile actors, Mm -hmm. uh, but also, you know, one area that they have been involved in the last few years is looking at... Those members of the Canadian Armed Forces who are involved with ideologically mo- motivated violent extremism, mm-hmm. or IMVE, we are not the only tool in the toolbox uh, to counter IMVE. But really, when it poses a counterintelligence threat to the Canadian Armed Forces, then that's when uh, our national counterintelligence unit becomes involved. Thanks. I just whenever I hear counterintelligence, it's like, oh, spy hunting. That's really cool. <laughs>
0: uh, so. And then the second job, you're basically head of Defense Intelligence Enterprise, which includes, does that include CSIS and CSE and, and those folks,
2: or are they? No, no, not at all, yeah. And so when I say the Defense Intelligence Enterprise, that's truly within Canadian Armed Forces Department and National Defense. The organizations you were talking about there, I would consider them part of the national security and intelligence community. So we certainly deal regularly with CSIS, with CSCE, with the Intelligence Assessment Secretariat under the Privy Council Office. Uh, but as you look across the intelligence enterprise for the Government of Canada, mm-hmm. CFIncom is the only all-source intelligence, uh, has the only all-source intelligence capability across the government. And so when you say all-source,
0: that means technological, human, human intelligence, and whatever else. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, geospatial
2: intelligence, human intelligence, Uh, meteorology, counterintelligence, we're involved with targeting. I mean, I talked a bit about the units, but within CFNCOM headquarters, our analysts are broken up into those that deal with transnational and regional threats Mm -hmm. and then those who are looking at uh, science and technology. So given all those, the two
0: mandates you have or two hats you wear, which one fits most easily and which one is a little more uncomfortable? Well, I'd say neither of them
2: are uncomfortable and I don't spend a lot of time every day figuring out, hmm, am I making this decision as the commander of CF Incom or am I making this decision as the chief of defense intelligence? Because as the chief of defense intelligence, I'm responsible to both the chief of the defense staff, General Ayer, and the deputy minister, Bill Matthews. Mm As commander Canadian Forces Intelligence Command, I'm responsible to the CDS, to uh, General Air. But again, you know, I deal with both of them on a regular, basically a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there are so many areas where it's a blend between talking about what's happening in the current day, talking about things we need to be aware of as we're planning future architecture or looking at, for example, uh, policy issues.
0: And I can't help but notice uh, that your agency, since you've taken it on, has been actually fairly visible. You've been involved in a of efforts. You've sent people to engage in, for instance, our activities with our Young Minds event last spring. And it's strange for those outside the military to see the people who are most associated with secrets, that is the intelligence types, be so out there in the public eye. And I'm sort of curious as to what's going on. Why, Why are you so engaged in Communicating with the public compared to either other parts of the military, or compared to what your your department used to do before you took it on. You know, frankly, Steve, if the perception was
2: you know that it's, it's strange for us to do it, I'm actually trying to change that because I don't think it should be strange. So you know, certainly we're not going to talk about trade craft, we're not going to talk about you know certain very compartmentalized programs, but I think it's important as part of the overall discussion about national security in Canada. For Canadians to understand what Canadian Forces Intelligence Command does, but also what comprises the Defense Intelligence Enterprise and how we work not only within Canada with those other agencies in the national security and intelligence architecture, but also with our allies, be it in Five Eyes, the Five Eyes, or uh, be it in NATO. Well, since you raised the
0: international partners, I can't help but ask you a question that you might not have been anticipating which is we just signed an agreement with Japan on intelligence sharing. And I was being asked by the media, what can we give them? We're over here, they're over there, they know what they're doing. They're getting intelligence from the Americans, getting intelligence from the Australians. So what is our relative value for providing intelligence to to Japan?
2: Yeah, I think our relative value is that we, because of our size and, and also because of our geographic location, We do bring a different lens to a number of problems, but also the Canadian Armed Forces is very much involved in operations in the Indo-Pacific. You know, If you look at both Operation NEON and Operation Projection, we've regularly had both aircraft and ships operating in the area. So I think it's important for us to look at an ally like Japan and see what can be done for the sharing of information and intelligence with them, because certainly the Indo-Pacific region is only going to become more important in the future.
0: Surely, it's very important. And NEON is the mission to monitor sanctions with North Korea, and Projection is the freedom of navigation operations. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes.
2: Thank you for for providing the context that I probably should have.
0: That's okay. That's all right. Uh, I just it was good for me to make sure I knew what I was talking about too. So yes, we're, we we care about the Pacific, and we have we're operating with. The Japanese on exercises and all the rest. And I guess, yes, we are learning stuff in the course of those operations that we can share with the Japanese. It was just striking that given our capabilities compared to the United States or given the regional expertise of Australia, I guess the question is how much more visibility does this give the Japanese than they would have without us? I guess the first thing. And I'll ask the second thing after after you ask that, address that. Okay, so I don't think I can
2: answer for Japan as to uh, what it brings to them. I can certainly talk about what it brings to the Canadian Armed Forces Department of National Defense, and that's, you know, we are very well established uh, in Europe because of not only uh, NATO, but also uh, relationships, deeper relationships that we have within NATO but we have actively been seeking to ensure that as the Indo-Pacific region does become more important uh, that we are able to have deeper relationships with some countries there so there's certainly what's being done you know from each of the services the army the navy and the air force our assistant deputy minister uh, for policy helps produce the global engagement strategy but it's important for us as an intelligence organization to you know have a worldwide network
0: no i It was more obvious to me that what we got out of it, given Japan's visibility in that part of the world and that we don't have as many allies to rely upon. and We don't have as many institutions and our allies there often aren't very happy with each other. So we can't rely on a multilateral arrangement there. But it was very—it's in the news because it just happened in the past couple of days, so it was good to get your perspective on it. I guess one of the other questions that I'm curious about these days is—you obviously are paid a lot of attention to the to the war in Ukraine, and I guess for me that involves a lot of different dimensions. Uh, can you speak of some of the things you're paying attention to when it comes to Ukraine and, and, and what that means? You know how you're translating that back to the the CAT and the department? Yeah, absolutely. So
2: I mean, probably the most obvious is we're tracking on a day to day basis what gains are being made on the battlefield, and frankly, the incredible gains that have been made on the battlefield by uh, the Ukrainian armed forces over the past couple of months. But you know, we're not just a news reporting organization. We have to talk about what's happening, but then what does it mean for the future? So certainly, as you can imagine, uh, one thing that we've been looking at over the past few weeks with those overwhelming Ukrainian successes is what does this mean for the escalation steps that are available to Russia? And we've all heard the right being used by uh, Vladimir Putin. What are the possibilities and what are the escalation steps that could lead to what he has stated? You know, that the fact that the use of nuclear weapons is not off the table. But I always remind people that what he said uh, just a couple of weeks ago is very similar to what he said just a few days into the campaign. And yes, it's important that we pay attention to what Vladimir Putin says, but we also have to keep in mind that in the weeks and days leading up to the invasion, he said, no, it's purely a military uh, exercise, that we we have 100,000 troops facing uh, Ukraine from three directions.
0: Uh, uh, So we have the analysis of the war as it's going on, Uh, that is the progress being made the likely steps that the Russians are taking. So it's also in your office's responsibility not just to assess how the war is going, but the lessons to draw from it, that you're you're analyzing the technologies that are working, the strategies that are working or failing, and and also using that, or is that on some other part of the CAF that does that?
2: No, we certainly play a role in that, and uh, with the U.S. in particular, uh, they have done a lot of deep looks at what lessons can we learn from the initial months of the invasion of Ukraine? And particularly, uh, you know, what could China learn from that in a potential future conflict with Taiwan? And what can Taiwan learn from uh, Ukraine? So there's been a lot of time and a lot of discussion uh, spent on that as well.
0: I'll ask you a question and you might not be able to answer it, but one of my fears looking at this crisis and looking at China is the Chinese might discount Russian failures and Ukrainian successes as being applicable to their situation because hey the Russian allows you at this but we're better at it we're not corrupt we're not you know this that and the other thing do you get a sense from how the Chinese are looking at this that they're learning that that war is hard and that maybe an invasion of Taiwan would be a bad idea or at least more difficult than they think or is there a sense that they're learning lessons to maybe be more effective, but it's not really discourage them from their previous ideas? Well, I think the first
2: thing China has learned that there's probably a lot of regret from the 4th of February statement where the uh, friendship between Xi and Putin was a friendship without limitations. And in fact, I think we're seeing there are limitations. If you just look at the vote that happened in the UN yesterday, um, China abstained, yep. but the fact that China abstained and... You know, there has been, uh, including the meeting that happened last month uh, in Central Asia, there has been what I think is some distancing of the relationship between China and Russia. I think what's also really interesting is that Russia's missteps are only accelerating the imbalance in the relationship between China and Russia that we will start seeing magnified over the coming years. I don't think i answered your question though which was in terms of china and uh what they are learning it, it it is a concern for us to try to decipher what lessons they are learning and if it is changing their calculus at all for again doing what xi has stated uh, will inevitably happen and that's reunifying taiwan with the mainland so you know much like i mentioned We can look at what Vladimir Putin said about Ukraine before the invasion of Ukraine. We can look at what Xi has said about Taiwan. And if other avenues fail, they are willing to take military action to reunify Taiwan with mainland China. The joy of my second book, King's Coming Back
0: to Me, is I I worked on exactly this topic. Not, Not China, Taiwan, but when countries will engage in war to take back lost territories and how title of the book was for kin or country because there's a real trade-off between doing what you think is necessary to unite your kin and what is best for your country russia is now very much realizing that what what happened here is might be good for well actually it's not really that good could have been for some of the russians in the near abroad but it's actually really bad for for russia as a country but i didn't mean to make this interview a sales pitch for a book that came out a while ago i guess one of the questions i have is the uk intelligence folks have been very, very visible in providing daily tweets with maps and analyses. And I'm curious as to why we are not doing that. Is it that already, the ground is already covered by other sources, so it's not worth our investment of time? Is it they just have a different political system that allows them to put that stuff out quickly? Um, I'm, I'm curious as to, I mean, because there has been stuff coming out of Cap of, of about this, but it's just not been the daily stuff.
2: So no, we're not doing it on a daily basis, but on a weekly basis, we yeah. are part of the whole government uh, approach to confirmation. So there are on about a weekly basis tweets that come out of Canadian Air Force's Department of National Defense produced by CFNCOM. Uh, there are those that come out of Global Affairs Canada and those that come out of the Communications Security Establishment. Certainly within DD CAF as well, uh, our Canadian Joint Operations Command is also contributing to that. Um, we do have the support of the government. So, you know, this was a deliberate uh, proposal that was made up uh, through those departments through privy council office the government absolutely you know endorsed the approach that we've taken and in fact just a little plug of my own uh, in the next week i'll be speaking at a uh, assistant deputy minister of public affairs symposium within dnd caf and the focus is disinformation what we've done about it but also what we can do about it in the future because i do not think just as some of the pre-bunking or, uh, you know, the release of uh, classified information, particularly by the US and UK beforehand. I, I think that's something that was not done only for this conflict. I think you'll see that in the future. I also think that this is something that it is responsible for governments who are fully supportive of the rules based international order to be uh, involved in combating the disinformation, which frankly, countries like Russia and China have been engaged in for years.
0: Yeah, I was really struck by the pre-bunking that preceded the war. I guess from your standpoint, you think that that strategy is a good idea going forward, even though it may risk revealing sources?
2: So I can't talk about it again because it was the uh, US and UK who made those decisions, but I can tell you just as when decisions like that are made in Canada, there's a very robust process. And the risk assessment, and particularly the risk of sources, is always something that is uh, carefully considered.
0: Very fair. A lot of it, obviously, the most attention for the past year has been on Russia, Ukraine, and China, Taiwan. When you're presenting or preparing information for the political leadership and for military leadership, what is the topic that, that isn't getting enough attention uh, or that you are making sure that people get attention of that uh, may not be obvious to those on the outside?
2: Well, I think uh, one of the important things is that, yes, Russia, yes, China, but more importantly, Russia, China, together with other regimes pose a threat to the rules-based international order. And that rules-based international order is what has allowed countries like Canada to thrive Uh, since the waning days of the Second World War. So there are revisionist regimes, as we said, in Russia and China, but there are also regimes uh, such as those in North Korea, Iran, who are also actively seeking to supplant the rules-based international order. And international order that is not based on uh, the rules that have been established is an order that is much more dangerous.
0: I'm curious as to whether there's something that hasn't been as widely talked about lately that that we should be paying more attention
2: to. Yeah, so I I think a good example there is uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. And climate change is not necessarily a threat area where defense intelligence is going to take the lead. But it is important for defense intelligence to be involved in tracking that. So we have formed within CFIncom. We have a number of regional teams that look at, for the example, Russia and the Arctic, China, the Middle East, but we've recently formed a thematic team. It started by looking at climate change, but they're also going to look at food security, energy security, You know, basically all of those areas that don't have borders. From a defense intelligence perspective, understanding the current and really the future of reflect- Effects of climate change are important because we can use that as a predictor of where we may see conflict in the future, mm-hmm. where we might see uh, migration, where we might see lack of resources, water, food, and where when we have those conditions in place, recruitment for violent extremist organizations is going to increase. Well, you've got your hands full. With the,
0: the world is definitely a much more interesting place, which is good for an international relations scholar, not so good. The folks who actually have to deal with these issues on a day-to-day basis. Since the name of our podcast is Battle Rhythm, can you tell us what your Battle Rhythm is? What do you do? How do you get through the day, days and weeks of uh, lots of
2: work? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, on a daily basis, you know, the first thing I do in the morning after reading through uh, reports is get on a secure BTC with my team, and my team, you know, represents all uh, the folks who are looking at all those regions, all the science and technology threats, and we basically go over. Here are the most important items that we need to be aware of uh, throughout the day. And we do that through what's called a defense intelligence daily, where we say, here are some breaking news updates, and here's two or three items that we're going to talk to in a little bit more detail. I take that and I go right into a meeting with the chief of the defense staff and the deputy minister where, amongst other uh, strategic leadership, we talk about the issues of the day, and I'm able to give them that Really over the course of a day and a week, it, it varies. You know, There's a lot of responsibilities being a level one within the Canadian Armed Forces Department of National Defense, but then also I have to ensure that I spend a lot of time on our international relationships and particularly our relationship uh, with the Five Eyes. So just last fall, I had the uh, privilege of hosting the Five Eyes Chiefs of Defense Intelligence in Quebec City and that was important because we really came out of that meeting you know with a decision to operationalize the five eyes defense intelligence uh, relationship i would say that from a defense intelligence perspective the five eyes relationship is extremely strong
0: i'm tempted to ask what kind of heft do the kiwis bring to the table what is their area of expertise that that you wouldn't get if they were not if it was just the four eyes
2: yeah so i, I mean uh, it's very important because they bring a regional perspective They bring a perspective of a country in the region that is not as big or as well resourced as Australia. And, you know, if you ask about what are they actually bringing, they bring us reporting on the Antarctic. They bring us uh, reporting on some of the atmospherics in the Southern Pacific Islands. And that's the beauty of the Five Eyes relationship. I don't have analysts who are looking at what's happening in Antarctica Mm -hmm. because I don't have to, because we have two very strong Five Eyes partners who are looking at their And frankly, amongst the five eyes, Canada has developed a niche as being experts in what's happening in the Arctic. And that's not only Russian activities in the Arctic, but it's also Chinese activities in the Arctic, because frankly, it is not only for scientific research purposes or or, uh, natural resource purposes that we see China casting an eye and becoming more involved in the Arctic.
0: Is there anything else you'd want to tell our listeners about what you guys are up to and and what kind of spaces?
2: Well, actually, I'm just going to go back to the question you asked about uh, New Zealand, because I could imagine that if this was a podcast happening in the UK, the US or maybe even Australia, they'd say. What's Canada bring to the table? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Canada absolutely is a net importer of intelligence. First of all, why the Five Eyes relationship is so important to us. You know, to, uh, I believe it's a Wayne Gretzky quote, we don't look at where the puck is, we look at where the puck is headed. And there's a great synergy amongst the Five Eyes to make sure that we are able to cover each other off in either areas, geographic areas or in certain of our capabilities. So, you know, I can tell you that the Canadian SIGINT enterprise, not only within the Canadian Armed Forces, but our colleagues from uh, CSE have a sterling reputation amongst the five eyes. Yes, we are only a fraction of the size of that enterprise from, for example, the United States, but the quality that Canada brings and the professionalism that we bring is very much appreciated.
0: I did open up Twitter while we were talking and I do see that you get your the CAF does have a report and it does actually give credit. One of the challenges of a government is uh, as team government, oftentimes you take the labels off of whoever gave the information and whoever wrote the slides last, puts their organization on top of it. So it's nice that, that the tweet by the CAF does give your group credit for uh, the slide that I'm now looking at on uh, Ukraine and updating uh, the analysis, that you're debunking the Russian claims that the missiles that hit Ukraine over the past couple days were aimed at military targets. And your group provided data that this would show that this is not true, that this was not accidental that they were targeting targeting, civilian targets.
2: Absolutely. You know, it's something we've been tracking throughout the conflict. And it also shows Uh, some of the weaknesses we've seen in Russia. We've seen weaknesses in leadership, we've seen weaknesses in logistics, but we've also seen weaknesses in their ability to accurately target. And certainly Russia is a country that does not are into targeting that uh, a country like Canada or our Five Eyes allies would.
0: So I guess that raises the question of when we see them hit a place, you know, they hit a mall. Is That that suggests that not that they're carefully targeting a mall, it's that they're targeting a civilian neighborhood and they don't really care which building they hit within that area. Is that a fair way to characterize it?
2: Uh, it you know, that's certainly, it, and this is something we always do an analysis of, you know, it, is it is it indiscriminate or is it they are such, they have such poor accuracy and the fact that they're using increasingly dumb bombs uh-huh. uh, means that they are incapable of hitting what they had tried to
0: hit. And some in some cases it's A, in some cases it's B. That's right, and I'm not gonna give you a percentage of A or B. <laughs> and I guess part of what you do is also look at patterns. And so I guess you would say that the patterns of, of their targeting here is not that different from their patterns of targeting in Syria, even though they were using different weapon systems, but they still have, have sort of the same pattern or were they more accurate in Syria when they were able to fly over targets without having to worry too much about anti-aircraft?
2: Yeah, so there, you know, I I don't have the details uh, at the the tip of my tongue, but what I can say is we're very concerned uh, that the uh, Serovkin, uh, the Russian general who was in charge of the campaign in Syria has just been put into a position uh, coordinating uh, Russia's uncoordinated actions in Ukraine and whether he'll bring the same uh, type of destruction, which had complete disregard for civilian populations in Ukraine like he did in Syria. Or frankly, if this is just gonna be another attempt by Russia uh, to fix a campaign that has gone wrong since the 24th of February.
0: When we think of intelligence, we think that should inform strategy. And one of the things that's been strange about Putin's behavior the past nine months is he is not a chess player he hasn't been thinking two or three steps down the road he just thinks about the one step and i guess for you and your job your job is to help our leadership not just react to the the next step that putin makes but to think about the second and third order consequences to think about what are the four steps five steps down the road that these things will lead to. For instance, I'll go back to my favorite example, which was Putin by attacking Ukraine in 2014, took away from Ukraine the most pro-Russian part of the electorate. And so that would mean that in any subsequent election, Crimeans who might have voted for somebody who was pro-Russian are no longer there to vote for that candidate. And that was foreseeable. And so he changed the political balance in Ukraine to be more hostile to Russia, not just through the actions of seizing Crimea in terms of like people being upset about that, but taking away the pro-Russians. I'm curious as to as to whether you were involved, your agency is a involved in and in thinking through it. and speaking of about you know the second third order effects, the, the, the third and fourth move down the road type of stuff. Is that that's a part of the conversation you have with the CDS and the Deputy Minister and ultimately that gets to the Prime Minister?
2: So it's absolutely a conversation we have internal with the Chief of the Defense staff and the Deputy Minister. It's something we also work with those other organizations in the national security and intelligence architecture within Canada, but also with our five eyes. The one thing I will say is, you know, you talked about Putin either being a horrible chess player or not being a chess player. I'm going to quote Michael Hayden, the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, from his book "Assault on Intelligence." You know, I, I read this I think about uh, two months before the invasion. and He said, "Putin is not a chess player; he's a checkers player. Like, let's not give him credit. You know, Putin is a thug who spent 20 years consolidating power." and having an increasingly small circle around him. And I think, frankly, uh, that small insular echo chamber that he created around him led to not only the missteps that were made in the planning for the invasion of Ukraine, but can largely describe or provide a reason for why we've seen so many of the missteps uh, since the invasion recommenced on the 24th of February.
0: So the academic analysis has been that he's a judo master, which is that he, he sees a vulnerability, he strikes, but he doesn't really think about, okay, now that I've done that, before I do that, what will happen after I do that strike? And so he doesn't think two steps ahead. He's just thinking about that that moment of vulnerability. And so the key thing we're all thinking about now is, is something you mentioned earlier, which is the question of, of a, a nuclear strike in Ukraine. And the, the joy of being Canada, we don't really have a vote on how to respond you know, the, the biggest way possible, which is... We don't have nuclear weapons. We don't have a say in how the United States deploys its nuclear threats. But I'm sure that some of you guys have been gaming out both by, in your own office, but also in conversations with other by-by partners. Are you getting more or less sleep these days based on these conversations? Well, it,
2: First of all, uh, Russia has the capability. Uh, the question comes down to the intent, and the question comes down to what are those escalation steps uh, mm-hmm. that Putin could still take be- before making a decision to potentially uh, use nuclear weapons. But also, it's the art, not the science, of looking at his calculus, Mm -hmm. looking at uh, how he is receiving information, what information he's receiving, and taking into consideration the fact that, if you look at all of the degradation of Russia's international reputation, the fact that I truly believe that uh, use of nuclear weapons would make Russia a complete international pariah.
0: Yeah, there's not any military targets that would make sense. I kind of was most worried in March because if your problem is regime change in Ukraine, you can't actually get to Kyiv. Well, there's a different way to get to Kyiv. And, and I don't think that's really in the cards anymore. I think that the Ukrainians have probably that would be more robust than just, just being about Zelensky. But I'm, I'm a little worried because their whole doctrine of escalate, deescalate seems to be something that might resonate right now within the Russian mindset. Yeah, I I think you know when you're
2: talking about Ukraine it's important to again I'm I'm going to use a quote here and quotes from President Zelensky but a week and a half ago, said Ukrainians know what they are fighting for. Uh, Ukrainians know that they are fighting for their country. And in fact, if you look at Russia's missile and UAV strikes that occurred uh, on Monday, if anything, that only I think hardened the resolve of uh, the Ukrainian uh, people.
0: And this is one of the things that that people have really have drawn the lessons from World War II, which or Vietnam, for that matter. Is there's been plenty of places that have been bombed heavily that have not caused the civilian populace to to give up. From the you know, bombing of London in 1940, and from our bombing of the Germans and the Japanese uh, during the war can't bomb the way to victory on your own, uh, by itself so I'm hoping that Putin remembers some of the lessons because he certainly has forgotten a lot of the other lessons from him. World War II. Mike, I really appreciate the time you spent with us today. We did meet with you, the team from the Summer Institute, and we found that briefing really very helpful for understanding what it is you guys do and what your office does. And so I appreciate the time you take out from this. And I will say that not everybody in the military and not everybody in the various agencies around government are quite so willing to talk to the public. So your efforts are very much appreciated. Thanks,
2: Stephen. I'll just say, you know, going back to one of your first questions, why are we doing this? Uh, because I believe that this can help with the conversation about national security and a national security culture uh, within Canada. But I will also say, as a plug for the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, CFINCOM is a strong organization, but we are always looking to build the team. And I know there's some fantastic young Canadians that are involved, both at institutes like the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, but across the country. We would love to see uh, form part of the defense team that uh, comprises CFINCOM. In the future, so thanks very much for the opportunity. Not a problem. That that is a plug for the DORP program, the Defense
0: Intelligence Officer Recruitment Program. People are much more familiar with the one that's run by uh, policy, the ADM Paul, which is the Corp program, the Policy Officer Recruitment Program. But the DORP is a similar kind of thing. Lot you get lots of applications, so you get a lot of competition, even in this labor shortage. I'm sure you get the very best talent. I will definitely send our students applying to your entry level program into uh, Defense Intelligence.
2: Yeah. Thanks very much. Steve.
0: Take care and good luck maintaining your battle rhythm in these very, very busy days.